Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the show. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I hope you are doing okay. I have a great episode for you today. Don't forget to subscribe to this program wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. My guest today is Miriam Gerba author of a new essay collection entitled Creep, Accusations and Confessions. Not always, but often essays are provoked by feelings of discomfort or annoyance with arguments that I hear repeated that don't make much sense to me. And so that tends to provoke like some sort of investigation that then leads to the drafting of an essay. And I kind of think of essays as my version of algebra, where I'm solving for why, and I'm doing it through language. All right, that was Miriam Gerba, author of the new essay collection entitled Creep, out this week on Avid Reader Press. This is a very sharp, very subversive, heartbreaking, sprawling, often darkly funny, essay collection about oppression and toxicity. It is an informal sociological exploration of the toxic traditions in the United States that help to create abusers at all levels of our society. Creep is the follow-up to Miriam Gerba's much-heralded true crime memoir entitled Mean which was published by Coffeehouse Press back in 2017. My conversation with Miriam will be happening momentarily. Before we get started, a quick reminder that you can join the Other People Patreon community if you are a fan of this show, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, if you like literary culture and you would like to support it. Just go to patreon.com slash otherpplpod and join the Other People Patreon, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Help keep this show going into the future. I also want to let you know that I do a weekly email newsletter. It is free. You can sign up for that. I would love it if you would sign up for that over at other PPL 
com or bradlesty.com. The newsletter is simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I also share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, go sign up for the newsletter at otherppl.com or bradlesty.com. All right, so my guest once again is Miriam Gerba, author of the new essay collection, Creep, Accusations and Confessions, available now from Avid Reader Press. Miriam Gerba's other books include the aforementioned true crime memoir, Mean, which was a New York Times editor's choice, and it was called one of the best LGBTQ books of all time by O, the Oprah Winfrey magazine. Miriam Gerba's essays and criticism have appeared in a variety of publications, including the Paris Review, Time Magazine, and Four Columns. She is a native of California, a proud daughter of California, and has lived here all her life. I am very pleased to welcome Miriam Gerba back onto this program for a second time. And I think we should just get to the conversation. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Miriam Gerba, and her new essay collection, One More Time, is called Creep. I very much like extreme titles, like titles that are so short as to be monosyllables. And then I also like really sprawling titles. And the uh, memoir that I published prior to Creep was titled Mean. And again, we've got this monosyllabic kind of punchy word that functions as both noun and verb. And because Creep is both prequel and sequel in some regards to, to Mean, I wanted to, to indicate that through the title itself. And the word creep appears throughout the various essays. So the reader creeps through the book until arriving at the, at the title essay. Yeah, I mean, it's like, made me think, like, what is it? We, we use this word in the, in the vernacular. It's like mm-hmm. a casual thing, like, oh, what a creep. And I started to think to myself, like, well, what is a creep? Creep's like a bad person. <laughs> I mean, these yeah. are the ways I, I characterize it to myself. But it's yeah. also some also somebody who gives me weird feelings, like he's creeping exactly. me out. And then mm-hmm. creeping is also used uh, at turns in this collection as a verb. Absolutely. I, no- I noticed it. So it's got like a, a kind of manifold meaning. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and the title is an invitation to the reader to think with me and to meditate with me on that word and the popularity of that word and how that word is capable of, of holding multitudes. Yeah. Well, and it also made me think of that Radiohead song where it's almost used as Absolutely. a, it's like self uh, uh, derogatory, you know, like where you're self denigrating, you know, you're exactly. thinking of, you're thinking of yourself as a creep, which if I'm being honest, you know, I've had my moments where I'm like, ugh, I'm such a creep or my daughter will be like, dad, that's creepy. <laughs> you know, like we all, we all take turns sort of, we all like, it's one thing to have creeps in our lives, but I think we also all take turns being a creep or feeling Absolutely. like one. And, and again, like the, the book is an invitation to consider 
the creeps who have insinuated themselves into our lives, but to also consider how we're implicated in what we might want to call creepdom because we all are in some sense. And so it's an invitation to the reader to, to meditate on that and to locate oneself within creepdom. Yeah, creepdom. I like this. <laughs> and this book, the subtitle of this book is Accusations and Confessions, which is, I think, what you're speaking to there. You know, this is not just you looking outward and kind of uh, telling about the creeps in your life. It's also you kind of self-investigating and maybe exploring aspects of yourself that might qualify in the creepdom, uh, <laughs> you know, what do you call it? Spectrum or whatever, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And um, and part of the book's project is is a reassessment of figures who've been very influential in a literary sense and and who have been cultural movers and shakers and and have achieved almost idol status and so i'm inviting people to rethink those figures as creeps and then also uh inviting people to consider what their legacy might be because all of our legacies are going to be mixed we're humans right and so we're all going to leave the these mixed legacies and and i think that when we uh focus on our mortality and 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 we think of 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 ourselves as being future ancestors we can we can think much more critically about the way that we live now and and living rightly and justly yeah well, I mean, like some of the people that you are painting in this collection and kind of drawing into creepdom and making the reader re-examine in many cases, William Burroughs, uh, Carlos Salinas de Gortari, who that was, an, that was a part of Mexican political history that I was not aware of. I didn't know that story about him, but he was the president of Mexico who at the age of, at the age of four shot his family's cleaning lady, right? He shot one of the family's domestic workers, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, like, oh my God. And by the way, did I just the use... The youngest domestic worker at the home in the okay. context of a war game. Yeah. I, I, you know, that essay is about death games and the death games that we all play uh, uh, inadvertently and at times intentionally and, and, uh, and what we do sort of in preparation for death, right? And those types of games... <laughs> Are fun until somebody actually gets killed, right? You know? so, which, which doesn't doesn't happen doesn't happen often. Thank God. That essay where we have people, in particular, uh, people who are gendered as men, who are engaging in what they claim to be acts of play, but the stakes are quite high, and and in those supposed acts of play, women are repeatedly losing their lives. Yeah, I mean, I remember as a kid, my buddies and I, we played a game called Guns. We were just like, you want to play Guns? Just like five years old, you know, like, want to play guns? Yeah, yeah let's play guns. And we just pretend to shoot yeah. each other, or be like Star Wars characters or whatever. And then there's a game that you, a death game that you describe that involved you and I believe your cousin. Is that right? Where you were, or I'm trying to think, was it a neighbor? I, I forget the exact details, but you were, yeah, you were throwing Barbie dolls like off of, you know, a balcony basically to their- yeah, That's the way most kids play with Barbie dolls. They torture like them. Like most kids um, play violent games with dolls. And, and, and there was an explosion of this sort of storytelling uh, about, about sort of violent doll games when the Barbie movie was released, right? Twitter was awash in these horrific stories 
kind of delightful about about girls, you know, asserting kind of violent autonomy in terms of how they would play games with Barbies, which which seem to me to be sort of the equivalent of these other violent games that are typically associated with with um with with children with more masculine genders like quote unquote cowboys and Indians. You you have girls playing similar games. Like when when girls play house it's not necessarily that they're baking cookies and, and tucking people into bed. Sometimes they're poisoning people and throwing people out windows. That's another way of playing house. You know what I mean? These are your options, right? You've got a lot of options as a young exactly. child. Exactly. Consider what it is that goes on in people's houses. That, that, that's, that's the staging ground for domestic violence. And when children play games, they're mimicking what they see adults do. So, well, so, it's in, there's an that's interesting. What I, that's what I was doing as a child. Yeah. And, you know, what you just said calls to mind a passage in the book, and I'm going to forget exactly where it lives. I think it was a, it was either a passage in the book or it was something that you said in an interview that I read when I was preparing. So it's all jumbled together in my mind. But you were saying something to the effect of like, go outside wherever you live, look around at the houses on your street or the apartment buildings on your street, whatever it is. There are dramas unfolding behind those doors. There are bad things happening. <laughs> essentially, yeah. you know, in some of these houses yeah. anyway, and people you would never know because so exactly. much of this stuff lives in the dark. In privacy. Yes, it lives in privacy. It thrives in privacy. It thrives in secrecy. It thrives in the domestic sphere, right? And and that domestic sphere is often the realm of a particular tyrant or a group of tyrants who don't appear to be tyrants in, 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 in their uh, public-facing persona, right? And so I wrote that with this in mind when I did escape from domestic violence and I began to disclose to people that I trusted uh, that that had happened, I was met with sort of this deluge of disclosures that happened in, in so many different places. And that, uh, that sort of cascade of disclosures was incredibly eye-opening for me and then I came to realize that as I had been experiencing domestic violence I was surrounded by people who were also experiencing the same ordeal and the same predicament but they were doing it quietly and with a smile on their face just as I had been doing. I recall for example going to visit a family member who was living in a skilled nursing facility. I had been unable to see him because I had been in hiding. I had gone into hiding after I had escaped from domestic violence and so I had finally been able to uh, leave my hiding place and, and go visit this family member. And I disclosed to one of the workers at the at the um, nursing facility the reason why I had I had not come to visit my loved one. And in response, she removed her teeth. She removed her upper teeth. They were they were dentures. And she said, my husband did this. So I know what you're what what you're talking about. I, I can relate. My because God. I showed her and then I showed her my broken teeth because I have I have a broken tooth from what happened to me. So there were connections like that, extremely visceral connections that I was making with people once I decided to disclose. And I found them everywhere. Did it surprise you? Um, in the beginning, it did. And then it stopped surprising me. And then I, 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 I became very sort of um, accepting of, of the ubiquity of, of the problem. And then uh, it came, now I'm at a point where I'm much better at detecting signs that a person is experiencing that or that a person might be perpetrating that kind of harm. And so I'm, I am sometimes now less surprised when I hear a disclosure. 
because I can I can see I can see some signs there there are sometimes some hints and some clues present but before I escaped from domestic violence I, I likely would have been unable to pick up on those do you what are some signs I'm curious for example if a person seems very isolated and has to check in with a partner and ask essentially ask for permission to have a social life <laughs> you are potentially interacting with a person who's surviving domestic violence. Most of us don't have to seek so much permission in order to have a free social life or, or a free intellectual life. So that would be an example. Well, there are, as I mentioned, figures in the culture who you are pointing to uh, as creeps or as like creep adjacent. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mentioned Burroughs, William Burroughs, who you know some people might not know who are listening shot his wife, Joan Vollmer, in, mm -hmm. it was an accident, but it was still- He claims it was an accident. Yeah. I think it's very important when we, when we talk about abusive men, especially men who've committed femicide, to contextualize what they call accidents as accidents that they are identifying as accidents, mm. but that perhaps might not be accidents. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, the only thing I would say is like, there was a third party there. I mean, who knows? That guy might have been an abuser too. But there was like people in the room, and he was yeah, trying to. Yeah, one of them was Burroughs's lover. Oh. One of them was his male lover, and men often commit acts of violence to impress other men, which is what makes me doubt the accidental nature. Also, women don't get murdered for staying with an abusive partner; they get murdered for leaving their abusive partner. Volmer had indicated several weeks prior to being shot that she wanted a divorce. Oh. And then he w like was trying to shoot like a, what something off the top of her head. According to lore, he wanted to show off his marksmanship because he was selling some guns, and so he invited Joan to place a glass on her head, and she did. And then he took aim and he fired, and he he hit her in the head. Wow. He struck her in the head and and she died. Okay. So others uh, whom you write about, Richard Ramirez, otherwise known as the Night Stalker, like a fam yeah. famous, infamous serial killer in Southern California. Yeah. Uh, terrifying, terrifying guy. Like there's a documentary that was on Netflix. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but- I watched it, yeah. You did? Okay. I, I, I like looked at it, but I'm too much of a chicken. I can't watch that sort of stuff before going to bed, but I'm just like, man, terrifying. It's not worth It's not worth your time. Okay. Well, it's tacky and voyeuristic. Oh, it is. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good. All right. Done. So then there is, uh, in addition to Richard Ramirez, there's Tommy Jesse Martinez who mm -hmm. attacked you. And yes, who sexually assaulted me and who has been identified as having assaulted about five other women. And he, he murdered one of the women he assaulted. Okay. Yeah. And that is something that you write about in your preceding book, The Memoir yes. Mean which mm -hmm. generated a lot of attention. Yes. Uh, yes. And then Joan Didion mm -hmm. <laughs> gets, you yeah. know, kind of mixed treatment. I think she's been an an, a literary influence on you in positive ways, but in her work and in her life perhaps was insensitive in your view to, uh, to Mexican culture and Mexican people. Like her family history has a lot to do with the founding of California or I'm going to mischaracterize this. Yeah. She had like ancestors who kind of what came over on the wagon train to settle California and steal the land essentially from people. She's and very proud of her pioneer ancestry. 
and 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 I was I was I was raised by 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 my by my parents by my father in particular to scoff at the word pioneer. My father would always joke that if there are people uh, uh, there to greet you, then you're not a pioneer. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> there were plenty of folks to greet these assholes when they arrived in California. So they were not pioneers, although. Uh, that that's what they dubbed themselves, but yeah, Didion is present because uh, the the collection is 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 in many ways a family history, and it's also uh, a literary genealogy of sorts. And we don't really have much of a choice in who our influences are. Our influences find us; we don't necessarily find them. And so Didion is one of those people who's writing found its way to me and and when i first found her writing i was so enthusiastic about it because here was a woman writing about a place that i knew very intimately and a place that i loved the place where i was born the place where i hope <laughs> to die and be buried you know and then as i as i as i matured and i became more familiar with her work the it's 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 racist politics began to trouble me and so i attempt to reckon with with those politics and the influence that she had on me and and i attempt to to familiarize my reader with a california that uh is inaccessible through didion and so i offer a different vision of california and and ultimately what i'm arguing is that didion's vision of california is very limited and yet it's her vision that dominates Right. I was going to say, so, this is, I mean, this yeah. is in addition to being like about creepdom. This exactly. is, this is very much to me, a California book. And you're very, you're, you're so like open about the fact that you love California. You're a California person, born and raised, want to die. Like, you're like, I want to die and be buried in this yes. soil. Yeah. Like as a kid, I had those thoughts. I'm like, I'm a weirdo when it comes to loyalty to place. Like if I love a place, I love it in the same way that I would love a person. Like I like I even want to hold on to the place. I want to cuddle with the place. Like I remember like as a kid finding California to like like thinking that California had such a delicious smell that I wanted to put California in my mouth and eat it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. like because of because of the smell of the sage and the wet earth and you know so so yeah so in 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 some ways a lot of the work that i do is 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 like a perpetual love letter to california <laughs> yeah well and i think like I, I should say i'm not a native californian but i've lived here for 22 23 years i love it too it's such mm -hmm. a, it's such a magical place i think in my view you know like it contains so much you've written and spoken about this really beautifully and said a lot of the things that i feel like you know just it's, it's <laughs> cultural diversity it's geographical diversity it's got everything there's so much going on here and it's just so staggeringly beautiful so i'm uh i share your love for california and i think that as a writer who is wanting to write about california and and to imbue her work with this sense of place and this love of place pretty impossible for somebody writing in these times anyway to write about california without contending with joan didion because as you said She's sort of like the the person, the writer who is most commonly, I think, associated with this place, or one of them anyway, as, yeah. as a person who has written about this place and brought it to life in literature in a way that is like really affecting and pervasive in the culture. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But limited. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and like, and 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 when I do give Diddy and her flowers, like one of the one of the things that I write is that. 
she mentored me in sort of this coolness and this condescension. There's a certain stance that that she pioneered and uh, and excelled at, and so and so she is in part responsible for my voice. She mentored my voice in a sense, mm. um, and so I, I am grateful to her for that. But she deserves she deserves a scolding for. <laughs> for for a lot of her politics well I, I i did an episode years ago with some writers it was multiple guests who had i think like written for and edited an anthology of work about joan didion in california it wasn't like by her but it was about her and it was about california <laughs> one of the things that has bothered me because i find you know listen i love those essays uh, for many of the same reasons that you do. She's a beautiful writer, obviously a very smart human being with like a very sharp mind, very gifted. So, you know, like she deserves her flowers, uh, as you said. But like one of the things about Joan Didion that has always given me pause has to do with the way in which she is often valorized by writers, younger writers and on social <laughs> media. It's 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 less for the writing and it's more for the lifestyle. Of course, it's like oh the the Corvette and the big sunglasses and the cigarette and the Malibu He's house. Providing a template for a certain type of like cool bitch glamour. You know what I mean? Right. That that I think there are a lot of I uh, of 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 girls in their their or women in their twenties and thirties aspire to. Like, like we want, we want that romance and we want to project that glamour too. And so I'm seduced by it too. Like she, you know what I mean? You've got this, 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 this writer with these big shades and her long cigarette and her hair blowing and she's in the bright yellow Corvette. I mean, come on. Like it's, I, I get it. It's aesthetically it's a, seduced by that kind of imagery. No. Yeah. I get it as like at the purely aesthetic level. Yeah. But it's like, you know, it's a little bit annoying to me when she's like, I was tired. So you know, we went off to Hawaii for, you know, yeah, she, it's totally annoying. she's it's constantly totally just like, we went to the Beverly Hills hotel because I was exhausted. And it's like, okay, well, nice. But it's also so aspirationally American. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think that there are so many people who like, yes, like I want that. Like I want to be, I want to have a terrible day that ends in me uh, on, on a fainting couch in the Beverly Hills hotel. Do you right. know what I mean? Like what a life. What a life. <laughs> what a life. But you know, it's like, uh, what was it? Why, why am I blanking on her husband's name? Uh, Dunn. Gregory Dunn. Gregory Dunn. Yeah, Gregory Dunn. I mean, he came from a ton of money, didn't he? So like, like they just kind of, yeah. yeah. So they were just like, exactly like I, I tried to, you know, I, I, I like what one of the one of the anecdotes about them that cracks me up is that they were so bored at the San Isidro Ranch during their honeymoon, which is like where the Kennedys honeymooned. It was just so dull that they had to decamp and you know go to Beverly Hills or San Francisco or wherever it was that they went. I mean, it's just what wonderful things to complain about. Yeah, you know I was going mean? to say. I love to have those complaints. Yeah, high class problems. So Exactly. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, so you write about her, and again, it's mixed. It's not like just like a hate fest. Like you do have some love for Joan. We got to say that. And then the book ends powerfully. Uh, another uh, person that you write about is an ex-boyfriend, domestic abuser that you refer mm -hmm. to as Q. Yes. Uh, so there's that. Oh, and then I missed your cousin Desiree, also very affecting, <laughs> affecting writing, uh, very like moving to read about Desiree and her trajectory in life and, you know, the things that she has suffered through and had to deal with and the long road that she has had to travel. So, yeah. you know, there are lots of different interesting figures. Some are cultural and public figures and some are, you know, more from your personal life, mm -hmm. but they all fall somewhere under the umbrella of creepdom somehow. Yes. <laughs> and I think, yeah. you know, what's interesting to me as I was reading this, I find this is often the case in really good essay writing, is the associations that you are drawing. And a question that I have for you is how it happens, because there's a lot of energy and magic in essays where an author is kind of telling you one story and then like, veering off onto another trajectory, which these essays do, they move. There's a lot of velocity on the page and it's, <laughs> it's fun, you know, it's fun because it keeps you, it keeps you going and, uh, you know, you never quite know what's going to happen and then boom, you'll draw yeah. a line between two or di three yeah. different things that had felt disparate, but then yes. you realize, for example, that, oh God, I'm going to screw this up. But I want to say uh, two of the Night Stalker's victims are buried in the same cemetery that your grandmother is buried yeah. in. So it's like a question that I <laughs> Yeah, yeah. A question I have for you is, did you begin these essays with those associations in mind or did those associations come to you or were they realized in the writing itself? Both. So it, it happened both ways. So... Not always, but often essays are provoked by a feeling of discomfort, feelings of discomfort or annoyance with arguments that I hear repeated that uh, don't make much sense to me. And so that tends to provoke like some sort of investigation that then leads to the drafting of an essay. And I kind of think of essays as my version of algebra where I'm solving for why and I'm doing it through language. And so, for example, there's an essay called Slimed where I explore the intersection of humor and horror. And I write about rape in the context of practical jokes. And the spark for that essay there were actually two sparks for that essay. One of the sparks was that when Mean was published, 
some of the criticism that I received for that book was aimed at my style, that I used a comedic style to narrate an account of sexual violence. And there were some readers and some critics who found that to be inappropriate, that uh, I needed to use, um, that it would have been more appropriate for me to have used a serious tone or even like a reverential tone. And I've always thought that like, rape is a lot more offensive than jokes about rape. <laughs> and, I, and I think that that, that sort of, uh, that that evaluation is lost when people want to purge comedy from certain kinds of storytelling. And so that kind of spurred the writing of, of that essay. And then another spark was this knee-jerk reaction that I've noticed that some people have to misogynist humor. For example, a, a man might crack a misogynist joke and the knee-jerk reaction is, well, I didn't find what he just articulated funny, therefore it's not a joke. And so we're gonna recategorize the statement that he made as something other than a joke. And I don't understand why we need to recategorize what the man has said as something other than a joke because somebody didn't find it funny. Most of us, I think, I mean, I don't find most jokes that people make funny, but I can still recognize that they're jokes because jokes, I think, function, jokes have a so social function. They don't necessarily function for the sake of amusement. And so my discomfort with both of those phenomena was what then led me to sit down and start thinking through it. And so these ideas seem very disparate, but my job is to consider the intersection and the crossroads. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you're juxtaposing a lot in this, in this collection. And it's part of the fun of it, you know, is that you're drawing lines between things that people don't normally draw lines between. And you're finding, like convincingly, I think oftentimes, finding things in common. I mean, one of the things you talked about just a second ago is this similarity between uh, like practical jokes and, uh, and sexual, assault. sexual assault. And it's this idea that horror and comedy are both a violation and that yes. they both involve the breaking of rules. And that's very mm -hmm. true, right? I mean, so they do share that in common and it's- And typically a subversion or inversion of power. Yeah. Right? Because the practical joke is played on somebody and rape functions similarly, sexual assault functions similarly. And, and, and the, the shared element is lack of consent and the element of surprise. Right. I mean, what I've said, I've said this on this show many times, but I'll say it again. I feel like maybe most permissive in my life. I don't know. That, I, I feel very permissive when it comes to humor if somebody is joking in good faith, even if I don't find it funny. Like if somebody's telling a joke and they, they mean to be silly, even if yeah. it's like irreverent or impolitic, as long as they're not being like outright mean to somebody and they're punching down at somebody, I don't. I'm willing to allow a joke and I don't get it when people get super intense about it and want to police humor. Well, I think that, you know, po policing humor aside, I think it's very important for us to take the humor of supremacists seriously because those supremacists are communicating their values to us. And they're also offering to us their vision of the world and their vision of an idealized world. And so in a sense, they're giving us their playbook. 
And why would we reject that playbook? Why would you reject the why would you reject the receipt of your enemy's playbook when they're offering it to you? <laughs> and maybe maybe you didn't expect to receive that playbook through a list of jokes. But if that's how it comes to you, use it. Don't reject it because it's lowbrow, you know? And, you know, I think for somebody who's suffered uh, sexual assault or somebody who's suffering from like really intense depression, like I've seen this same sort of thing, the same sort of dynamic play out with people where it's like, you shouldn't be joking about suicidal ideation and depression. And it's like, well, you know, if the person who is suffering from deep depression yeah. decides to try to process it through humor exactly. or the person who has suffered sexual assault decides to process it through humor. Like who are we to say, don't do that? Like, exactly. you know, so I think it's very uh, interesting and very human. You know, it's also, I think a very effective way to alchemize some of this tougher stuff in life. Like what totally. else, what else yeah. are we supposed to do with it? <laughs> you know, like if you can't make, if you can't try to find some humor in the darkness, like yeah, you're dealing with I, a, I was I was kidding the other day with somebody and saying that I'm the Mary Poppins of sexual assault because <laughs> because when I do discuss this subject, I acknowledge that we need our spoonful of sugar, right? And that comes in the form of comedy in my case, you know. Yeah. So yeah. yes, so here I am, Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a but there is a great irreverence in your work, and there's a lot of humor, and kind of like blunt. It's like this very blunt humor. Uh, that is in every essay. And I love that because this essay is dealing with dark, you know, darkness, but to have, you know, you can write a book or make art that is entirely in the dark, right? It's all about the darkness and it focuses there. And yeah. there's, there's not a laugh in it and it can be beautifully done. So there are no rules. But what I will often say is that I really appreciate work that embodies kind of all of it because that's, that's how life is. Exactly, exactly. It's like, yeah, I mean, for me also the comedy allows breath because otherwise the the sort of baroqueness starts to suffocate and so the the, the humor is is an invitation to breathe and maybe get a glass of water right <laughs> you know? right like, uh so i want to i want to talk i want to talk to you about uh the issue of catharsis mm -hmm. because you know for somebody who's been through as much as you have been through it's very easy, I think, to maybe characterize the writing of a book like this as like a cathartic act and something that you have said, and I'm going to quote you to yourself is making art, <laughs> if I may, uh, okay. making art isn't necessarily cathartic. Instead, it can be a protective cocoon. Yeah. So, and I think maybe when you said this, you were referring to the writing of mean. Yes, but I was. I'm wondering if the same applied to the writing of creep. Um... I would say that the writing of crepe was very different than the writing of mean and it and it and it didn't necessarily function in the same cocoon like way. But that statement about the writing of mean is intended to satisfy those people who are curious about like creative experiences and their relationship to catharsis. And I think a misunderstanding that is very popular related to, to those phenomena. And that misunderstanding is that, 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 that catharsis, catharsis is, 
is a, an unavoidable side effect of, of, of art making. And I don't think that that's the case. Art making can be really arduous and art making can itself be traumatizing or re-traumatizing. Uh, for example, when I was working on my memoir, Mean, and I was writing about the perpetrator, Tommy Jesse Martinez, who was a stranger who sexually assaulted me, who assaulted other women, and who actually murdered, brutally murdered one of those women, I didn't know many of the details related to Martinez's attacks of others, and I did not know the, the details involving the murder. And so when I learned about those that reopened wounds and it created new wounds because I didn't know that. And, 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 and exposing myself to that information was really difficult and really painful to navigate. And so art making can be the wound in and of itself. And I think that there's this fantasy that when, it, especially when a woman engages in some sort of confessional work, that that confessional work functions as a purge. But, but, but <laughs> vomiting and art making are not the same thing. It's not as if you empty yourself of experience. Like you still carry that experience. You still carry that pain, even when you have externalized it. And especially if you've externalized it for the sake of aestheticizing it. Because not all art is therapeutic, only some art is therapeutic. And, um, and ironically, when I was working on Mean, I was surviving domestic violence. And I was living with a person who I feared would take my life for extremely petty reasons. That's, that's how violent this person was. This is, this is Q, so, this is Q in the book. Is, yes, exactly. So this is the person that I wrote about in the title essay. And you can't have catharsis under those circumstances when you're sleeping with one eye open, you're not like, oh God, I feel so unburdened. Like, no, <laughs> like, <laughs> catharsis is like the furthest thing from your life. And so what I'm inviting people to consider is that unless you know the conditions under which a work of art was created, don't assume that it was freeing. And then the protective cocoon part of it, I'm imagining is that you're living with uh, someone who is abusing you mm -hmm. and your place of solace was in this work. Exactly. Because, you know, when a person experiences uh, uh, domestic violence, which I prefer to refer to as coercive control, because ultimately all of that violence, all of those threats are done for the sake of, of controlling, right? The abuser is essentially like a puppeteer and, and they want to control you completely. That manuscript was one of the few areas of my life that this person could not control. He couldn't follow me into the manuscript, right? Like he could chase me around where we lived. He could enter into my phone. He was, you know, monitoring my comings and goings, but he didn't live in my imagination. And so my imagination was my cocoon. Like your reprieve. Mm -hmm, exactly. It was my haven. You have, and you eventually had to escape. That's so, yeah. it's so harrowing, like unbelievable. It is. And I also hope that like, this essay can kind of shift conversations around women's and victims of all genders who have to escape from coercive controllers and escape from domestic violence, right? So often the conversation is framed in terms of leaving, but I've never heard anybody who asks somebody who was incarcerated in a prison, why didn't you leave? Dude, I'm in a fucking prison. <laughs> like, you don't leave a prison 
Domestic violence is a prison. You don't walk out of a prison, right? What do the guards do? The guards will shoot you if you leave. You have one guard and that's your abuser. And you don't get killed for staying, you get killed for leaving. So yeah, I always find it very strange when there's that question, why didn't you leave? Well, I was in a prison, asshole. Like, <laughs> what'd you expect me to do? Like leaving and, le and, and escaping prison is very high stakes. What can happen when you're escaping from prison? You're a fugitive at that point, you know? So how did you, and how did you do it? You escaped with help. You didn't just- I escaped with help, so I planned it. It took me about a month of safety planning with um, a person who's an advocate who has helped people in this situation before. She had like decades of experience assisting. And so we planned how it would happen. We both decided that the termination of the quote unquote relationship could not happen face to face because when I had attempted to terminate face to face, I was seriously assaulted. I was strangled and strangulation is terrifying because you literally have somebody holding your ability to breathe in their hands and they're showing you that they will squeeze the life out of you. Right. And, and, and the other, the other danger indicated by strangulation is, uh, that, um, uh, it's a lethality indicator. So those of us who are strangled by, by abusive partners, then have a 750% increased risk of being shot by that partner down being, the road. Being shot by them. Yes, being shot by them. So what some researchers argue is that the strangulation is a warning. Do you want to die? And this is why victims quote unquote stay because we don't want to die. And we've been shown what will happen to us if we dare to leave. We're captives. So I had somebody assist me with that planning and we went through it very, very meticulously. So I had a very meticulous plan um, for that day that I would that I would make my exit, that I would flee. And then I also had a safe house arranged. And then there were also uh, individuals who had agreed to protect me. So it was an orchestrated event. It wasn't as if you just say, deuces, I'm leaving. Hell no, I don't want to die. So I planned it very carefully, you know? Mm. Well, I want to shift and I want to ask you, I think a question related to something we spoke about uh, a bit ago has to do with this, the associations that you make in this, in this collection, like often unexpected, beautifully done, like these really fun moments for the reader where you're connecting dots. And I'm going to quote you again to yourself because <laughs> this struck me, this really struck me. It made me think of that issue, but it also, I think illuminates the way that you approach the work. And I want to hear you talk about it. You say, quote, I don't approach writing as straight narrative. I approach writing more like a math problem. Yeah. Like, so can you talk just a bit about like what that means? And, and is it related in the way that I'm imagining to the way that you might play with, for example, associations? It feels like pieces clicking together. Yeah. I am a big enthusiast of uh, puzzles. Like I love puzzles. And to me, essays are puzzles, right? And sometimes I'm missing pieces. And so when I approach an essay, I can become quite obsessed with finding those values, finding those pieces, calculate, like I mentioned earlier, sort of solving for Y or solving for X. And so I will place what appear to be sort of these disparate pieces side by side and then consider how they might function together as an assemblage. How might I put these together? And it's my job to find what, what those relationships are. And sometimes the relationships are very tenuous. 
And those tenuous relationships can be interesting to me. And then at other times I find uh, these very tightly knit, tightly woven relationships that I couldn't see, but that I had to do some digging in order to find. And so, and so, <laughs> you know, what's funny is like, I, I hated math when I was a kid, when I was growing up. And so I, I feel like I have finally found sort of a type of pseudo math <laughs> uh, uh, through essay writing that, that I, that I, that I perhaps can, can finally be proud of because I just, I did so poorly in, in math when I was a kid. When I was a kid, if, if a subject matter did not come easily to me, I loathed it you know, and, and math was one of those, like math was one of those subjects that I did really well at until I turned about 11 or 12. And then suddenly, like, m my math skills vanished. I don't know yeah. how or why. But oh, I don't think it's that uncommon for writerly people to hit the wall in math at some yeah. point. But this is math in service of <laughs> what you like to do and what you are made to do, right? I mean, yeah. this is math that works for you. Otherwise, it's like, I think we were correct as children to ask the question, like, how the hell am I going to use this in my life? The yeah. answer is n not at all, yeah. know, most likely. So yeah. it's fine, fine to be disinterested. It's not my thing. But yeah. I want to ask you about the musicality of your writing. And like, there is in it a kind of energy. I always call it like the energy of the spoken word. Mm -hmm. Like some writing more so than others feels really written which is, you know, of course your writing is written too, but yeah. uh, there, there is also writing that I think in its style has the energy of the spoken. There's a real vitality to it and it feels like, well, this person's just talking to me. Yeah. And I know from poking around that, uh, A, you come from a family of storytellers as writers often do. Yes. And not only that, with your family roots in Guadalajara in Mexico, there is an oral tradition in storytelling mm -hmm. that yeah. is like pronounced. Yeah. Uh, you know, pun intended. And then I know too, that you read your work aloud as mm -hmm. part of an edit, like a self editorial function, which I do as well. A lot of writers I think do this, but yeah. can you just talk a little bit about like finding uh, your voice in that way and the musicality of your work and the importance of hearing it spoken? I love the sound of language and I love the sound of storytelling. And I love when I'm swept up into the rhythms that are composed by masterful storytellers. And I was like informally mentored by masterful storytellers in my family and, and tellers of tall tales. For example, my grandfather, who I, I wrote an essay about in, in the collection, uh, he was a, a storyteller and a, and a teller of tall tales. And I loved and continue to love sort of the bigness of his stories. And also- This is, this is wait, this is the grandfather who was uh, friends with Juan Rulfo? Juan Rulfo, yeah, he was a publicist. And so I, I feel very fortunate to have had a, a grandparent who was a publicist because he, he really uh, demonstrated for me how to inflate a story, <laughs> how to make it big. And also, um, he, you know, publicists are also people who are unafraid of gimmick, you know, he's a very gimmicky person. And so I, uh, and a person who was unafraid of novelty. 
So, so I feel as if I inherited a passion for those phenomena from him. And like you were saying before, I read all of my work to myself. And I, I do that because I intend for my work to be read to like a live audience. And I never want to be caught uh, in front of that live audience with work that hasn't been read and reread and, and whose music isn't as close to perfect and, and finished as I can get it. And, and the only way that I can get the work um, to that point is to expose the work to my own ear and others' ears over and over and over. So it's it's kind of an arduous process, but but it's one that I'm committed to. I think one of the other reasons that I'm also so devoted to like orality is that I, I taught for a long time um, and I worked with teens. I taught high school and it is very dangerous to have bored teenagers on your hands. So, <laughs> and so I, again, had to teach myself how to hold young people's attention. And again, gimmick and novelty is very helpful. You gotta be an entertainer if you're gonna Absolutely, teach. absolutely. And if you fail, you're, you're gonna be in trouble. I was gonna say, they will let you know. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. And so, and so I credit I credit my students also for refining those skills. <laughs> well, speaking of young people, speaking of teenagers, something that I read about you that charmed me <laughs> has to do with the way that you learned how to write. And the, like, especially like in an autodidactic sense, uh, you taught yourself to write. You've, you've said this again, I quote you to yourself. I taught myself to write through choosing literary ancestors and mimicking them. And you're in Catholic school growing up and you're going to the library and you're picking books off the shelf. I think you were assigned a lot of American modernists as a yes, student. A ton. So you're, you're falling in love with some of those writers. You're reading more of those writers. And then crucially, I think this is a really important point. You read about their lives. So yes. it wasn't just reading their work, which is vital, mm -hmm. but you then went and found literary biographies, for example, and read about their lives and how they did it. This is a very shrewd act, I think, by a teenage Miriam Gerba to self <laughs> to self educate because it's it's an excellent way to learn and an, like maybe the most efficient way to learn. If somebody has done something really well that you want to do, read about how they did it and then copy them. <laughs> exactly, it's okay to use training wheels, and sometimes those training wheels are, you know, sort of like embodying the style or the voice of sort of these literary greats that one admires until we can let go of those training wheels until we can take those off off the vehicle and so yeah i i do still encourage people to to use that technique and and i came to that technique like you said in high school I had a literature teacher who bombarded us with a lot of um, uh, uh, modernist works. I fell in love with some of them. And um, she also had us reading a lot of confessional poets. And it was when I got to the confessional poets that I thought, I might be able to do this too, because I can, I can confess to some bullshit. So <laughs> I've got that ability. Exactly. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, I could do this, but it seems that I also need to deploy some discipline, right? 
So, so I, um, I became, and this is so cliched, but I became fascinated with Sylvia Plath's work, right? Because uh, one of the, one of the assigned uh, works that year, uh, it was my senior year, was The Bell Jar. So I remember reading The Bell Jar, and then I remember accessing all sorts of biographical information about Plath afterwards, because I became fascinated by her as a literary figure, and then wanted to read about her practice, right? Her writing practice. And so I educated myself about that writing practice, and then began mimicking it. So I learned that she had a particular writing schedule that she abided by, and I thought to myself, okay, well, if, 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 if I want to be comparable to Plath, I too must have uh, a rigorous schedule. And so I, I did that. I placed myself on the schedule and I needed to produce a certain number of pages every day. And I would come home from school and I would go to my notebook and sit in the corner of my room and then give myself prompts and then prompt myself to produce. And then I remember much, much, much later learning that one of the things that Didion had done when she was teaching herself to write was she would take Hemingway's work and sit down at the typewriter and type out his entire novels. Right. So that that way she would become incredibly intimate with the syntax. And I was like, yeah, it's training wheels. It's okay. It's okay to use training wheels. Now, and you're, a, you're the child of teachers. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like you came to this approach intuitively, but I have to believe, you know, being the child of teachers maybe gave you a bit of a leg up in terms of like how to self-educate, right? You're surrounded by educators. People are teacherly around you. You yourself are teacherly. Like you have a knack for this. No? Yes? I think that there's definitely like some influence there. I also think that like the the like autodidactic streak that I have, I think that we can also blame that on a year or two of Montessori school. Because as a kid, I had like kindergarten and first grade in Montessori. And from what I recall in Montessori, you're encouraged to learn what you want to learn. And what doesn't interest you, you can kind of turn your back on. And that kind of spoiled me for the rest of my life. Like that's been, <laughs> that's been the attitude that I've had toward learning is if I love it, I love it. And I'm going to completely devote myself to it and give myself over to this, to this, to this field of knowledge. And if I don't, fuck it. I, I, I don't need it. I can ignore it. And so, and so I think that style of learning really gave me like a tremendous amount of confidence, I would argue that it might have even given me a surplus <laughs> of confidence. And sometimes maybe I need to dial it back a little bit. <laughs> no, but I think that's good in a lot of ways. You know, I think it is like to have that sort of confidence that I can learn things or that I yeah. should have confidence in what I like. You know what I'm saying? I should have confidence in these feelings I have. Yeah. And, no, don't second guess yourself. Go for it. You know, it's better yeah. to jump in and it's better to jump in, I think, in life in most yeah. cases. And then you figure out where you've went wrong along the way or after the fact a little bit rather than to timidly be always in a crouch, you know, like one yeah. thing. You're never going to get anything done that way. So, Definitely. you know, we've talked about place earlier in this conversation, but I do want to like dial in the focus a little bit more. It would be a shame for us to not discuss Santa Maria a little bit because <laughs> this is a California book, but yeah. Santa Maria is the town that you were raised in. And I don't think that it is a town that is on the radar of many people 
outside of California or even within California. Absolutely. It's it's not the San Francisco, Los Angeles, Berkeley, whatever these bigger, you know, more, uh, more famous places, uh, you know, but Santa Maria is in North Santa Barbara County. Yeah. It is both coastal and agrarian. Mm-hmm. Like, can you talk a little bit about it so people can get a sense yeah. of where you're from? So Santa Maria is kind of like one of those blink and you miss it kind of towns. You know what I mean? Like if you're on the highway and and, and, and you're not really paying very close attention to to your travels, you, you might not even realize that, that you've driven through Santa Maria. It's a short town, not a tall town. And by that, I mean, it's one of those towns in California that just sprawls. And it seems to kind of sprawl without rhyme or reason. And like you mentioned, it's, 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 an, it's an agricultural community um, parts of it feel kind of rural or semi-rural, but that is also, I don't want to say tempered because that's not the right word, but that agricultural character almost seems to clash with it being not quite a beach town, but as close to, to the sea as it is. Uh, I was born and raised there and the town is is celebrated for its agricultural production. It's a strawberry capital. It's also uh, a barbecue capital. It's known for its tri-tip, which is quite delicious. And the environs are really beautiful, but it's the sort of place where like, when you're a teenager, you can't really sort of, at least when I was a teenager, it was difficult for me to to appreciate the beauty that I was surrounded by. You know, you're itching to leave, you're itching to escape, you just want to do drugs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and and as a young person, it, it feels very boring and and very sleepy. And 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 Santa Maria has very few claims to fame. And one of the few, and this is one that you know locals uh, don't necessarily like to trumpet, but it was it was where Michael Jackson was tried. It's the home of the Michael Jackson trial. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> say no, say no more. <laughs> exactly, and like Michael Jackson was this weird fixture in the in, in like a lot of Santa Maria locals' childhoods because he lived or he he would frequently be at Neverland Ranch, which was not in Santa Maria proper, but it was about thirty minute. It was about th- a thirty minute drive away. And so, you know, there were there there was no shopping around the ranch. The ranch was rural. So Jackson would come into Santa Maria to do his shopping and his socializing sometimes. So we have one mall in town, and that mall was a place where you could have a Michael Jackson sighting. And it was always incredibly surreal, you know? It's like you're at the pretzel shop and there's Michael Jackson. You know what I mean? It's like Did you did you see him growing up? Did I ever see Michael Jackson? I did not see Michael Jackson growing up, but like everybody, like, like I have one degree of separation from him. You know what I mean? Because everybody has their, their stories. Like I knew a man, for example, who was one of the groundskeepers who had stories. Uh, yeah, that, that I'm not supposed to repeat, but, uh, <laughs> oh, come on, please let's break some news. <laughs> but, but yeah, so many of us had, had, uh, had those stories. I mentioned the pretzels because I, I, I did have a friend who, 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 who worked at the pretzel shop who, um, 
who was who was one day standing outside the pretzel shop dispensing like free samples you know like they do at the mall yeah little like pretzel nuggets and, or whatever yeah like yeah exactly and michael jackson came clacking by wearing his surgical mask and and and, and my friend was just overwhelmed like he didn't know what to do other than offer michael jackson a pretzel bite so did he take it <laughs> and, did, as michael does michael did michael jackson eat carbs is the question he declined he declined he, declined. He, did. he did not want the pretzel yeah if he's if he's wearing a surgical mask pre-covid in a mall then he's exactly. probably not taking right? the public pretzel bits or whatever I would yeah imagine. and i remember my dad complaining when the trial was happening because my dad worked about two blocks away at, at a, uh, my dad's office was about two blocks away from from the courthouse where where Jackson was tried, and it just it became such a three ring circus, you know. Like there were paparazzi's on the roofs, like all up and down the streets, and then there is there there was rarely traffic in Santa Maria, like traffic jams. But during the trial, there was actual traffic, and my father was so angry that that Michael Jackson's misdeeds had brought traffic to Santa Maria. <laughs> it's blasphemy. Right? God forbid. I remember him saying, I hate it. I can't stand it. There's, I remember one day he was complaining that there was a giant panda. There was somebody wearing a panda suit on roller skates and they were dispensing coupons to Panda Express. And my dad had all this rage about the panda because the panda was holding up traffic. Like it was, <laughs> you know, like, it's a circus. Exactly. Got a roller. We have a roller skating panda in town. Exactly. For God's sake. Exactly. <laughs> so you know that's that that's a snapshot of Santa Maria for you. Well, listen, I gotta say, <laughs> the Chamber of Commerce is gonna be inviting me to. Uh... <laughs> You're the favorite daughter. You're the favorite daughter of Santa exactly. Maria at this point. Give me the key to the city, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, I gotta say, reading this book, I kept thinking to myself, like, wow, Miriam such an interesting person you've had an interesting <laughs> life this is also a credit to you as a writer i think we we find ways to like really dig in and f find what's interesting about our life and our ancestry and our cultural context like all these ways but you really bring it to the fore you make to me santa maria is now like mythology next time i'm on the 101 i'm stopping i'm gonna go look for a roller skating panda bear i'm gonna go <laughs> check out the courthouse but this is what good I writers do some tri-tip Yes. Well, I'm vegetarian, so I will buy some fresh strawberries <laughs> from the stand on the side of the road. I will. Okay. I will. I, that, those are the, those are always the best berries anyway, you know? Exactly. So I want to talk to you next about this time period in between the first time we met and spoke in my old dirty garage that was in, you know, had hornets in it, as I think we discussed before we started recording. <laughs> yeah. And now as you're celebrating the publication of Creep, a lot has happened yeah. in your life in that time period. Like I was, I was thinking that to myself as I was reading, like working my way through the collection, I was like, wow, this has been a busy few years for Miriam Gerba. And I think in particular, I wanna talk about one of the essays in Creep, which has to do with an essay, or it has to do with a book by another author. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the whole American dirt, what do you call it? Uh, saga. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word, but a lot. It, we can call it a media moment. A media moment. Yeah, there was a media moment with that. You write about it in the in this new collection, and it has to do with uh, I think issues of cultural appropriation. It has to do with a book that was 
like widely celebrated by the publishing industry. Like a lot of like name authors blurbed it. It sold for seven figures, I want to say. Yes, it was a seven figures. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, you read it because it has to do with the border and it features Mexican characters. And you were like, what? Like, can you just talk a little bit about your response to reading the book and yeah. maybe like coming coming to be aware of it because there aren't that many books in any given publishing year yeah that sell for seven figures especially literary fiction so i mean yeah this, this got on your radar somehow and i can imagine maybe at at first you're like ooh, kind of ex like maybe with some anticipation and excitement and then you read it and did not have an excited feeling I, so i didn't have anticipation or excitement i kind of had some confusion about the book when it was first assigned to me by a feminist magazine um, I had reviewed one title for them prior to this assignment, and that title was Sherry Moraga's uh, memoir. And so when they sent this thriller to me, I didn't know it was a thriller. All, I, I knew nothing about it beyond its title, American Dirt. And Wait, may I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like, did I mischaracterize it as literary fiction? I have not read American Dirt, so I, it's, it's a thriller. thriller. It's not. Okay. It, it was... It was marketed as literary fiction. So you're correct in 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 stating that it was marketed that way, but it, it I don't I don't really think it satisfies what some folks might you know categorize as, as as literary fiction. But so yeah, so the book got assigned to me and given the title, I was like is this a book about agronomy? Like what <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's such a weird title. So yeah, so I I took the book with me to Mexico, ironically, and I was in my aunt's house when I was reading it, and I was like, what the fuck is this? This is, what? Oh my God, this is embarrassing. So like, so so I wrote the review, and- And what was, what was embarrassing about it, just for people who haven't read? Well, I mean, the book was embarrassing to me because, because of the way that it was being marketed. Right. The book was being marketed as social realism akin to Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. Then I read it and it's a tawdry narco thriller. Grapes of Wrath is not a tawdry narco thriller. <laughs> and that's why, like, part of the title of I, 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 I titled, I partially titled the essay about the experience of reviewing the book, You Ain't Steinbeck, because there's nothing Steinbeckian <laughs> about, about that work, right? Or about that author's list. Like none of her works are like that. And the, the author in question is Jeanette Cummins, Jeanine or Jeanine, Jeanine, yeah. Jeanine Cummins, yeah. And so what I felt was that the, the way that the book was being marketed was extremely disingenuous. And so uh, what I wanted to do was correct that disingenuousness by stating that like, yes, it seems as if this woman has appropriated these very sort of cliched soap operatic tropes and, and, and narratives surrounding the drug trade in Mexico. And there's no sort of social analysis. There's none. This is, you know, this is a story about a mother uh, saving her son and herself from assassins. 
And so she's on this quest to the great United States where she's going to be safe. And, you know, I just found it really galling that the United States was positioned as, as a hero of sorts where women who are facing gender-based violence go for protection when, you know, women get murdered in the United States too and we get murdered due to misogyny as well. Like misogyny exists on both sides of the so-called border. So that that bugged me, it annoyed me. And it just it just seemed so funny to me that you know so many of the people who were praising the book were praising it for like some presumed authenticity. And I'm not even sure what authenticity is. But I think that like what what these readers are, you know, what these with these with these folks who were praising the book were communicating was that the book felt Mexican to them, right? It gave them Mexican feels. And then <laughs> right? Like well, and, and we should say, I, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Janine Cummins is not of Mexican descent. Yeah, correct? she's not of Mexican descent, but like you don't have to be of Mexican descent to write well about Mexico. Like you don't have to be from a place to write well about it. But if you study a place well and you study people well, then you can write write very competently about them. And 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 so I got the sense that she was a person who had not done her homework. And for example, like one of the one of the instances that I cite in my critique is that like the main character in in the thriller is uh, when she's when she's uh, journeying northward to to find refuge in the United States, she is absolutely shocked to discover an ice skating rink in Mexico. And I learned how to ice skate in Mexico. <laughs> like 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 we've got we've got some technology in Mexico. Like we have ice. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I was just like, what the fuck? Like, oh my God. Like, why is this Mexican acting like an American tourist? Oh, it might be because the person who authored this character is representing Mexico according to her perceptions of it. Like to me, it seemed that that's what was happening. And so for a reader like me, that representation is laughable. It comes off almost like a joke, you know what I mean? Um, but it's also kind of offensive. It's also kind of offensive. It's like, ugh, ugh, like really? It's 2023 and we're doing this, but also, or, or 2022 or whatever year it was. No, it was 2020. So it's 2020 and we're doing this. And then the other thing that I just found like so gross was that like, we were living through the Trump administration at the time and Trump was considering invading Mexico. And then this is, this is gonna be the Mexican book that, that, that we're all supposed to turn to, to learn about the immigration crisis. Is this turd? You know what I mean? So, 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 yeah. So that's sort of a sampling of the critiques that I had of the book. Yeah. So like appropriation wasn't really at the core of my critique, even though I do mention appropriation, because I think that people can appropriate really effectively, but this lady wasn't one of them, you know? And so you wanted to, I mean, clearly it, it caused you to write this review and it was a pretty, it's a pretty 
scathing review or a really yeah. pointed critique. And when you tried Although, to publish it, one, one more, one more thing. I did recommend the book. I gave the book a recommendation. I said that it would be a great addition to, to your, uh, to your stuck up gringa book club. Like if, if there's a certain kind of reader that's going to eat this up. And I said that in the review. Well, and we should say that this book went on to sell millions of copies yeah, around the world. Like, it's a very popular book. And it's so weird that like there are people who say that Miriam Gerba is the reason why this book became a bestseller. And then there's another group of people that says Miriam Gerba is the reason that the book got canceled. Which is it, bitches? That's a contradictory statement. Which did I do? You guys are ascribing me too much power. I think that the reason it became a bestseller is because Oprah touched it. You know, yeah. it doesn't uh, yeah. really have much to do with me. Oh, if Oprah touches a book, it's going to be a bestseller. That's a guarantee. Dude, she's got the Midas touch. I don't have yeah. the Midas touch. So you no, write this review. <laughs> you, but you write this review mm -hmm. and you submit it to, I believe, Miss Magazine, the yes. feminist magazine you alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. And what was the per the person said something to you like, you're not famous enough to write a review this pointed or something. Yeah. Isn't it right? So there were several editors who I communicated with and we were kind of, it was kind of a game of telephone because I get the sense that there was, there was like a hierarchy and that the, the messages were, <laughs> were being transmitted down the hierarchy to me. And ultimately, like I was told like, wow, this is really harsh. And I interpreted like one of the messages that I got to mean like, you know, you're, you're not, you're not well known enough to to write a review that is this scathing then later on i got a follow-up uh message or email from the editors that said no 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 no, that's not what we meant what we meant was janine cummins is not famous enough to receive a review this scathing and i was like how is that any better than the first thing that you said like both of these both of these reasons for not publishing the review are bullshit. like i think that this person wrote a shitty book and you asked me to review it and now you're telling me that I can't say that it's as shitty as it is because she's not famous? What? That doesn't make any sense. So yeah, so they refused to publish it, although they said that they would conditionally publish it. And the condition was if I could find something, if I could praise it, if I could figure out how to praise it. And I was just like, I don't have any praise for it. I think it's a turd. Like, I think it's a turkey. I, I don't want to have to praise it. And I've never, ever, like, you know, I've reviewed books before. This was not my first book that I've reviewed. I've never had an editor tell me if you can say something nice about it, we'll publish your, your, your review. Like I've never had anybody say that to me before. And so why do you, why do you think, why do you think they wanted that? What was the motivation? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why they wanted me to do that. I feel like, I feel like maybe people understood the position, the way that this book was being positioned. And so everybody kind of had to get in line to elevate the book. And I was oh, so That's what I'm thinking is like, maybe there's an editor at Miss Magazine who's like, we don't want to alienate Oprah for yeah. some reason. I mean, maybe know? they didn't, yeah, they didn't want to piss somebody off. And they figured that, that, that I would, you know, that this would piss, piss off somebody powerful. And so they refused to, so, so they killed the review and that made me really angry. And so then I wrote an essay about the entire experience and then I nestled 
the rejected review or the killed review inside of the essay. And the essay itself wasn't so much like a critique of that of that book. It was more a criticism of the publishing industry and the way that white supremacy works within the industry. That's and what you, the essay was about. And so the essay goes out in, I'm going to forget the name of the publication that put it up. Topics so the, of Meta. It's an yeah. academic, it's an academic site. So they published the, the review uh, untouched. They published your review as, they, as you wanted it to they be. They published the essay with the review couched inside of it. Got it. And then that essay went viral. Okay. That's the point is that this yeah. thing, you know, Miss Magazine says, no, not unless you can say something nice and sweet. And you say, no, thanks. And you take it uh, to Tropics of Meta. Tropics of Meta? Yes. And then it goes up and it take it becomes this viral thing. Yeah, it was very weird. I was surprised by by the virality. Yeah. And then it leads to the formation of something called Dignidad Literaria. Yes. With, that you uh, form with in conjunction with uh, authors David Bowles and Robert Lovato. Yeah. Which is about... So Dignidad Literaria was, or I, sh I should say is, although it's, it's, you know, hibernating now, a social movement that fights white supremacy in publishing. And as a social movement, um, we, um, we invited um, all sorts of folks to participate in various town halls in order to discuss the state of publishing, uh, racism in publishing. We also invited people to participate in art happenings and we also met with executives and staff at Flatiron to discuss. Um, Flatiron being the, the the publishers of of American Dirt. We met with them to discuss what they might do in order to transform the situation or remedy the situation. How were those meetings? <laughs> they were weird, like. I mean, it was like there were a lot of like phone meetings, but there was like one meeting in person where um, I was scolded by one of the executives <laughs> for having a mean tone, which I just found really odd. I was like, what? Like, why are you scolding me about my tone? And so he, you know, he was sort of telling me that I needed to be nice to his friend, Janine. Janine's a really good person, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm being critical of this lady, but like, criticism is fair game, right? Like that's part of this industry. Why are you telling me that like, I need to tiptoe or walk on eggshells around this particular writer? Like this is some bullshit. So I remember one of my comrades mentioned when I was being chastised that like I had been the recipient of some threats and shortly after the, uh, shortly after Tropics of Meta published the essay, uh, I got like a death threat and it was like a weird, ugly one, right? About basically like the police executing me. I mean, that's unpleasant to read about law enforcement killing you, you know? <laughs> it's, so. not, it's, not a, it's not a great way. It's not a great thing to wake up to. No, can see. it's super shitty. You know what I mean? And it's like, I already have PTSD from having been through like sexual violence and gender-based violence. So when people continue to threaten more violence, it can be triggering, like legitimately triggering. 
And so like, you know, one of my comrades brought that up and then the executive who had been like chastising me was like, oh yeah, well, well, Janine's gotten similar threats too. And then there was a staff member at the table who chimed in and she, and you know what she said? She goes, no, she didn't. Janine didn't get any death threats. There was no threats of violence against her. And Flatiron had released a statement saying that they had had to cancel Cummins tour because of all of these threats of violence. And I was just like, I had suspected that like, maybe the, 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 the threats that they had stated were overblown. But now I have this person stating, no, she just didn't get any threats, period. And then I thought to myself, oh my God, she even appropriated my death threats. She even, <laughs> like, like that's the, the, the extent to which these people will appropriate. They'll even take other people's death threats and, like, pump them up, you know what I mean? And, and, and make them their own. So it was weird. It was weird. And did anything positive or productive come from it? Yes. There, were, there was an additional editor brought on, and there were, there have been more titles acquired that are manuscripts by Latina folks. So there, there was some good that came of it. Although like the systemic change that I would want to see is, is not happening, but I mean, that systemic change is going to require like a major revolution. So, so I'm, uh, I'm still waiting for that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you've had quite a few years, <laughs> like in life and in writing. Are you, you know, we, I don't think we even got to, we didn't get to everything, but you write about a lot of it and I'll leave it to listeners <laughs> to like dig in, read the book and explore. I know that we're talking like kind of on the eve of publication mm -hmm. of Creep, which is always like an exciting time for a writer, a little bit uneasy. You know, there's all this, all these years and all this living, especially in a work of creative nonfiction has gone into the creation of this book. Like, how are you handling it? And how are you feeling? Um, I'm a little bit nervous. But early, that... review, early reviews are good. Oh, God. I'm, I'm a really superstitious person. So, like, I don't like to talk about reviews. Because okay. I feel like I'll jinx myself. You know what I mean? I, t I totally know what you mean. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm knocking on wood right now. Like, Thank on your behalf. you. I was about yeah. to do that, too. I'm going to do it right now. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. <laughs> But I will say, even if you're not aware, you know, like there's positive energy, I feel like in the reception. Uh, and I think a lot of people, especially people who read and enjoyed Mean are, have been waiting for this one. Is that there a sense that you have that you've heard, have you been hearing from readers? I hope so. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I am not a writer who writes for everyone. I know there are some writers who say, I write for everyone or I write for myself. I don't write for myself or for everyone. I write for like very specific audiences. And I do I do have like a, a soft spot for survivors of um of sexual violence and in particular of gender-based violence. And so and so the book is 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 for for that community of people, among other communities. That's like that's one of the communities that I always that I always consider as an as a potential audience and as as an audience that 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 I have a lot of affection for. Well, it I am not uh, a survivor and I totally resonated with this book it's good like it's a like I say you've lived a really interesting life and you're great at sort of 
I don't know if mythologizing is the right word, but like drawing these associations and just like spinning a yarn, you know, like spinning it into literature. And I was totally on board with it. And I always ask my guests if they have anything else in the works. Uh, You know, it's fine if you don't, if you're just kind of like taking a breath after writing this one. But I got to say, Miriam, I am envisioning a bookshelf containing like your collected works and I'm seeing lots of one word titles. It's like mean (laughs) creep. Like what's the next one? (laughs) So, so I, so for my next book, I want to critique true crime as a genre. Mm. That's, that's what I want to do next because some of the work that I've done in some ways can be categorized as true crime, but it's also intention with true crime. And I used to have a voracious appetite for true crime. And that was the case prior to my acknowledgement that I have post-traumatic stress disorder. And once I began to work very diligently toward some healing, that, that appetite vanished. And so what I'm interested in doing is, is, is exploring women's consumption of true crime because it, 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 it primarily has a female audience. So I want to look at the reasons for that, that attraction and that appeal. And my theory is that we're, if we were to live in a culture that was committed to the prevention of gender-based violence and the support of victims, this broad and very like robust interest in true crime, like like the market would sort of wither, I think, because I think that it's stepping in to, to sort of fill that vacuum. That's interesting. So as soon as you started to take on the project of really investing in your healing, that is when your interest dissipated mourn what had happened to me vicariously through other women's victimization ah yep that's that's interesting that's an astute psychological take because i gotta say like personally i guess i just i'm so in i will sometimes read true crime or books that are like tangentially associated with true crime but i don't have time and i think as i mentioned earlier with regard to the richard ramirez documentary I can't watch scary shit before bed. So like, I know there's a million documentaries about true crime and I'm just like, no yeah. thanks. Like I need to sleep. <laughs> uh, yeah. That stuff creeps me out. I don't, I mean, to use yeah. your word, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to ingest that before going yeah. to sleep. And I'm, I'm sort of like, I'm sort of like a little bit confused and in awe of people who are like, yeah, I love to just read about these horrible things that have happened to people. I a friend the other day who was talking to me or I was talking to a friend the other day who was mentioning crime con which is a big like you know true crime convention and she was saying that one of the most disturbing stalls or booths that she saw there was a massage area where you listen to your favorite sort of true crime anecdotes or stories while you receive a massage like how repulsive is that? How grotesque is that? Like, yeah. how you relax through that? So it's like things like that that I want to scrutinize, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think you know, this idea of it being an act of mourning, that's interesting. Exactly. And I think there's a lot of truth in it. That makes like immediate sense to me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think a lot of it is unresolved grief. Yeah. 
Well, I'll be excited to read that one. And it's been a delight to talk with you. Congratulations on all the success that you've had. Thank Congratulations you. on surviving all that you have had to survive. Thank you. And uh, I wish you well with this book as it rolls out and with uh, you know the one that comes next. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Okay, you guys, there we have it. That was Miriam Gerba, author of the new essay collection entitled Creep, Accusations and Confessions available now from Avid Reader Press. You can find Miriam online at miriamgerba.com. She is also on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. One more time, the new book is called Creep, available from Avid Reader. Go get your copy immediately. Don't forget to subscribe to this program wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. I would love it if you would sign up for my newsletter. It is free. It is once a week. You can subscribe at otherppl.com or bradlesty.com. Likewise, if you want to join the Other People Patreon community, if you like this program, if you had a good experience, if you want to help keep this show rolling into the future, go sign up for the Other People Patreon at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a quick favor, I would appreciate it if you would give this show a rating wherever you listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is. Give the show a rating, write a little review if that's an option. It helps the show in the algorithm. It helps it in the rankings. It helps it find new listeners. If you want to get another people t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I will read it to you if you want. Again, the book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Wednesday, I am going to be in conversation with Ian Lee award-winning author of the new story collection, Wednesday's Child, which publishes this week on Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I'm very excited to share that one with you. My conversation with Ian Lee coming up on Wednesday. So stay tuned.